last week, regardless of where we got to last week, we're going to start this time around. Well, actually, it was two weeks ago. Um, But regardless, this week, we're going to start in Judges chapter 3. So that's where we are. Now, if you remember, we, we discussed there's a cycle that takes place in Judges. You remember what that cycle was? (laughs) okay yeah that's the short version of the cycle they were with God and then they were not with God with God and not with God but the more detailed version is that Israel Israel sinned by worshiping foreign gods when Israel turned to foreign gods then the Lord appointed some group of people to come in and take over and ruin their lives, basically, run things uh, for Israel and treat them like slaves. After a period of time, Israel then would turn back to God and they would cry out to God. When that crying reached the point that God had heard enough, he would raise up a deliverer, the ones that we refer to as judges. That judge would come in then and, by the power of God, remove the oppressor. And then for a period of time, typically the lifetime of that judge, Israel remained faithful to God. But on the death of the judge, Israel would slowly revert, just as Blake was saying in his sermon today, you know. They would slowly revert and start worshiping foreign gods again. They would do evil in the sight of the Lord. And then the cycle repeats. God would hand them over to an oppressor, and they would be oppressed for a number of years. They would cry out to God. God would hear. He would appoint a judge. The judge would conquer this opposing army. They would have peace for the lifetime of the judge. When the judge was gone, the cycle repeats. And so there you have it. Yeah, they were with God, not with God, with God, not with God. So here in chapter 3, I'm going to read the first few verses here. And then we'll we'll discuss those and, and move through chapter 3. If we get done with chapter 3 today, great. If we don't, we'll pick it up next time. Now these are the nations which the Lord left to test Israel by them. That is, all who had not experienced any of the wars of Canaan, only in orders of that the generation of the sons of Israel might be taught war, those who had not experienced it formerly. These nations are the five lords of the Philistines and all the Canaanites and the Sidonians, and the Hivites, who live in Mount Lebanon and Mount Baal Hermon, as far as Labo Hamath. They were for testing Israel to find out if they would obey the commandments of the Lord, which he commanded their fathers through Moses. The sons of Israel lived among the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And they took their daughters for themselves as wives and gave their own daughters to their sons, and served their gods. So, <clears throat> the writer here says that God allowed these people to remain for two big reasons. You know, we talked a couple of weeks ago that the reason that they were left there is because Israel did not follow through with what God told them to do. He told them to drive them out. If they would not be driven out, they were to be wiped off the face of the earth. Israel did not do that. So now God says, well, there's two good reasons for these folks to remain. 
What were they? Okay, one, one of the things he says is that they are to test the Israelites to see if they will follow me, if they will obey me. So part of the reason that these folks have been allowed to remain, aside from the fact that Israel did not follow through with God's command and he and they allowed them to, come, to remain, is that God says they're going to test the Israelites to see if they'll follow my commands or not. What was the other reason? Well, certainly in a, in a, in a roundabout way, uh, they're, they're going to serve as the oppressors. So, but that's not what he says here. The writer says there's two reasons. One, he says, you're right, to test Israel to see if they will follow my commands. But the other is to teach them war. To teach them how to fight. This generation has not learned to fight. The, the, the generation that came in with Joshua and did the initial conquest, they knew about fighting. But it's, it's interesting, too. Uh, you know, they, they, they did have some wars. But it, it, if you go back to Exodus chapter 13, it's interesting. In Exodus chapter 13, verse 17, when Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them on the road through the Philistine country, though that was shorter. God said if they faced war, they might change their mind and return to Egypt. So God led the people around by the desert road toward the Red Sea. The Israelites went up out of Egypt armed for battle. So even though they left Egypt armed for battle, the Lord takes them on a roundabout route in taking, instead of taking the short route to face the Philistines, knowing that they would want to go back to Egypt. It's kind of interesting because everything that they hit that was hard, what did they want to do? Go back to Egypt, right? Uh, when water got low, let's go back to Egypt. We always had water. When food was scarce, what do they want? Uh, what? When we were slaves in Egypt, we always had food. Boy, wouldn't it be glad if we were back there? So this is just another excuse. If they faced war, they would say, oh, well, we were better off being slaves in Egypt than we are out here dying on the battlefield. So very fickle bunch, kind of like us, huh? Very fickle bunch. That's the way it is with people. <laughs> yeah, nothing ever changes. People are people, right? So what was the first mistake that these people made? What's the first sin that this, this writer says here in, in chapter 3? Before that. But you're right, that, that's the next one. What before that? He mentioned marriage, the intermarriage. You know, Blake mentioned that too, intermarriage. That was a problem, but it's the result of, of the first sin. Okay, and that really goes back to last week or a couple weeks ago. They failed to teach their children, and just like in the lesson this morning, the, Israel, or the, the Levites failed to teach God's Word. So two things that were from before... They were supposed to teach the word, and they were supposed to teach their children. 
They were supposed to run the people out, and that's what it says here. The first thing is, in verse 5, they lived among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites. They lived among them. That was not what they were supposed to do. They were told to run them off. And if they failed to be run off, they were to be annihilated. Man, woman, and child, they were to be erased from the face of the earth. That was the first mistake. They didn't do what they were told to do. Instead of running them off, they just lived among them. Now, since they're living among them, that comes the other problem. Then they give their sons to these foreign women, or they take those foreign women, uh, or the foreign men allow them to take their daughters, and then what happens? Well, just as Blake was talking about, you know, They convinced their mate. Yeah, there's a compromise that takes place. Well, you have your God and I'll have my God. We do that today. Sure we do. We compromise all over the place. (laughs) Exactly. We split families today too, right? Well, you worship God. I don't think I'll worship God. Or you worship God your way and I'll worship God my way. I don't think he says that. Right? Does Does he provide alternative ways... To worship as a family? Yeah, I don't think so. But there it was. The first problem is they lived among the foreigners. They were not supposed to live among the foreigners. Then what spins off of that is they take foreigners for their mates. And eventually then they serve the Baals. Uh, Deuteronomy had predicted that this is exactly what would happen. And this tends to be one of the biggest problems that they have. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, 23 and 24, uh, Moses is talking to the people there. He says, Do not forget the covenant of the Lord your God that he made with you. Do not make for yourselves an idol of in, in the form of anything the Lord your God has forbidden. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. So... They then do the things that they're not supposed to do. And going just a little bit further than that, they do evil in the sight of the Lord. And that's a phrase that will pop up over and over again in Judges 2. Uh, we saw it in Ju- here in Judges 3, uh, verse 7, and also verse 11. It'll pop up again in chapter 4, in chapter 6, and in chapter 10, chapter 13. That phrase is going to come back again and again and again as Israel turns to foreign gods. So, what does God do as a result of their worshiping other gods? He gets really angry. It's not good to make God angry. Uh, The Deuteronomy letter, Moses said, he is a jealous God. He is a consuming fire. And in this particular case, uh, he allows Kushan Rishayim, king of Amram uh, Naharam, which is northwest Mesopotamia. I wish they'd written it that way. um, (laughs) To take over... Israel and subject them for eight years. For eight years, they are allowed to do that. I guess I could have read it first. 
Um, verse 7, the sons of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord, forgot the Lord their God, served the Baals and the Asheroth. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel so that he sold them into the hands of this king. And that king, the name that's there actually means the double evil, doubly wicked Kushan. So his name's actually Kushan. That little tag on there means doubly evil. He's a really bad guy. A really bad guy. I don't know that that was all was his name or if that was a nickname that was attached to him. But suffice it to say, he's a really bad guy. So, when the Israelites cried to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer from the sons of Israel to deliver them. Othniel, son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. The Spirit of the Lord came upon him and he judged Israel and he went out to war. The Lord gave Cusha. Rishthayim, the king of Mesopotamia, into his hand so that he prevailed over this king. And the land had rest for 40 years. And Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died. This um, process, like we said earlier, this is something that goes on and on and on repeatedly. They cried out to the Lord, This cry is uh, a deep wail of distress. It is misery. It is not repentance. Out of sheer grace, the Lord replies by raising up a judge for them. So who is this guy that, that is raised up as the first judge? Othniel? Do we know him? Seen him before, right? Way back in chapter 1. When uh, Caleb was conquering the territory where the giants were, Caleb asked for somebody to come and take part of that territory. And if he would conquer that part of the territory, he would grant his daughter to be this guy's wife. As it turns out, Othniel takes up that challenge. He does the conquest. And Caleb rewards him with his daughter for a wife, also grants him property. And then she asks for water. And so he gives them the upper and lower springs that provide uh, water to that area. So this guy, it turns out, is the son of Caleb's younger brother. So he's Caleb's nephew, which would make him also of the tribe of Judah, just like Caleb. Who else is in the tribe of Judah? How about Jesus? Yeah, yeah, that guy. Yeah. Jesus is also of the tribe of Judah. Now, Caleb is not in his lineage, but they're both of the tribe of Judah. Um, We mentioned before, back in chapter 1, who was going first? Judah. Here in this particular section, Judah also. Apparently, the, uh, this king had pushed far enough south that Judah was impacted. And so the, the judge that is raised up, Othniel, is the judge that is going to push them out. But he is, a, he is related to Caleb in two ways. He is his son-in-law, and he is also... 
his nephew. Now, how did, Caleb, how did Othniel accomplish this task? How was he able to do it? Mighty army? Ferocious fighter? He must be somewhat of a fighter because you don't go into the land of giants and, and not know how to fight, right? Although David took out one of their descendants with a rock. But it says here, the Spirit of the Lord came upon him. The Spirit of the Lord came upon him, giving him power that he probably did not have, knowledge that he did not have, and he was able to accomplish God's will. We're going to see the Spirit of the Lord come back in chapter 6, and in chapter 11, and chapter 13, chapter 14, chapter 15. And despite all the horrendous things that the people did during this time, the Spirit of the Lord was dispersed by God many, many times during this evil period. Kind of uh, foreshadowing what would happen after Jesus ends his earthly ministry and the Spirit of the Lord is dispersed on his people. So he's a brave man from a family of brave people and he leads by the Spirit of the Lord. Not by power or by might, but by my Spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Quoting Zechariah 4, verse 6. That's where his strength came from. So, what resulted from the from Othniel's success? Forty years of peace. Forty years then, Israel enjoyed peace. But then the scripture says, Othniel died. What happens after that? <laughs> Cycle repeats itself, Right? Cycle repeats itself. Now the sons of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord strengthened Eglon, king of Moab, against Israel, because they had done evil in the sight of the Lord. And he gathered to himself the sons of Ammon and Amalek, and he went and defeated Israel, and they possessed the city of the palm trees. The sons of Israel served Eglon, king of Moab, for 18 years. So cycle repeats itself. Eglon, he is the king of Moab. And he unites a couple of folks to come after them. <clears throat> what, do, what do you recall, or do you recall, anything special about Moab, Amnon, and um, Amalek? What do you know about their history? Not me. I'm sorry? Oh, no, it's a different guy. Different guy. Um, it turns out they're all relatives. They all descended from Abraham. Hmm. So not only are they being oppressed now by foreign nations, but they are being oppressed by their relatives. The um, Moabites and the Ammonites were descendant of Lot, who was Abraham's nephew. And um, 
the Amalekites were descended from Esau, Jacob's brother. So you can track them all back, same family. All related. And this city of palm, or the city of palm trees, according to Deuteronomy 34, verse 3, is actually Jericho. Now, Jericho has been demolished. You know, when they, when they came in, it was demolished. I'm not sure if that's why now they're referring to this as the city of palm trees or not. Because most experts do not think that Jericho was rebuilt. So it's probably just the palm trees that are still there. It was the city of palm trees. And so maybe they're just occupying that space. But who knows? Maybe some reconstruction has taken place and there is some sort of a city that is there. But we don't know that. For 18 years now, this individual, Eglon, is ruling over the Israelites and making their lives miserable. When the sons of Israel cried to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for them. Ehud, the son of Girah, the Benjaminite, a left-handed man. The sons of Israel sent tribute to him, to Eglon, the king of Moab. Ehud made himself a sword and had two edges, a cubit in length, about 18 inches, and bound it to his right thigh under his cloak. He presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now Eglon was a very fat man, and it came about when he was finished presenting the tribute that he sent away the people who had carried the tribute. But he himself turned back from the idols which were at Gilgal and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. And he said, Keep silence. And all those attended him left. Ehud came to him while he was sitting alone in the cool roof chamber. And Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. And he arose from his seat. Ehud stretched out his left hand, took the sword from his right thigh, and thrust it into his belly. The handle also went in after the blade, and the fat was covered over the blade, so he did not draw the sword out of his belly, but refuse came out. When Ehud, or then Ehud, went into the vestibule and shut the door of the roof chamber behind him and locked them. When he had gone out, his servants came and looked, and behold, the doors of the roof were locked. And they said, He is only relieving himself in the cool room. They waited until they became anxious, and behold, the doors did not open to the roof chamber. Therefore, they took the key and opened them, and behold, their master had fallen to the floor dead. Now Ehud escaped while they were destroying, or they delaying, rather, and he passed by the idols and escaped to Syrah. It came about when he had arrived, he blew the trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim, And the sons of Israel went down with him to the hill country, and he was in front of them. And he said, Pursue them, for the Lord has given the enemy, the Moabites, into your hands. So they went after them and seized them at the fords of the the Jordan opposite Moab, and did not allow anyone to cross. They struck down all that time about 10,000 Moabites, all robust and valiant men. No one escaped. So God raises up Ehud. I'm sorry. Uh, yeah, Ehud, a left-handed man. Now, that can be translated several different ways. Uh, it could be translated that he predominantly used his left hand. But it could also mean that he only had the use of his left hand. And most people think that's what it was. That he, I, I've maintained for years my left hand's the only thing that works. This one was given to me just for balance. You know, just for symmetry, when you when you look at somebody, yeah, symmetry. Oh, yeah, that looks good. He's got an arm on each side. But it's useless. 
I do everything with this hand. Matter of fact, my mom knew when I was a baby that I was left-handed. But she was determined I would be right-handed. So she put a cookie in my right hand, and she held down my left hand. And after I had mashed that cookie all over my face, and my mom was crying, she turned loose in my left hand, and it went boom, boom. And she said, he will be left-handed. That's the truth. I am left-handed. Very left-handed. My wife's left-handed too, but she's not very left-handed. She can do quite a few things with her right hand. I don't do many things with my right hand. Matter of fact, I don't think I can count one right off the bat. But Ehud was dominantly left-handed. Many people think that he was crippled, which is why he was probably not searched thoroughly as the others. Now, he makes a sword that's about 18 inches, probably strapped it to the inside of his right thigh. If he was searched, they probably searched this side, thinking, you know, or over here. But they probably looked at him and said, he's crippled, he's not a threat anyway. Besides, he was just here. And now he says he's got a message from God for the king. Fine and dandy. And the king... Oh, he's impressed. God has a message for me. Now, I don't know if he thought that was the God of the Israelites or if he thought that was our God because he had just come from the region where the idols were. But he says, okay, you guys get out. He's got a message for me. Sends them out. And when they're out, he takes advantage of the king, moves in close because he's got to... He's got to deliver this message personally to him. When he gets close, brings out his sword, runs him through, and then disappears out the back way, before locking the door first, getting out the back way. We're going to pick up right there next week and finish up with Ehud, and then we'll get into... Well, I tell you what. No, we probably won't do that next week. Well, it depends. I'll put it that way. I may be here next week. I may not be. If my wife gets better, we plan to go to South Carolina. But if that falls apart, I'll be here. And then we'll finish up with Ehud. Thank you very much for your attention today, and we'll pick up next time.